The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, cervical disc arthroplasty and surgeon reluctance uh, to adopt the technology. I'm uh, Mark Michael. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon from Chicago, Illinois with the Illinois Bone and Joint Institute. I'd like to uh, introduce our panel today. I'll start over here. Yeah. My name is uh, Christopher Wolf. I'm here at the uh, in Santa Monica at the Curl and Job Institute and I am an orthopedic spine surgeon as well. Uh, hello, my name is Nick Shammy. I'm a spine surgeon at UCLA uh, and um, um, I have the pleasure of being here with you today. I'm Lisa Ferrara and I'm an engineer and I uh, reside in North Carolina and my company is Orthokinetic Technologies. Well, thank you all for joining the uh, panel today. Um, cervical disc arthroplasty, it's, a, it's an option that uh, is uh, available for uh, cervical disc disease, whether it be degenerative disc disease or disc herniations causing nerve pain related to uh, neck pathologies. And historically, the gold standard for this, as we know, has been to remove the disc completely and fuse it with either bone or, or some other material and a plate. Um, the problems that have come up with this technique is that it, uh, years later, it has posed a, a difficulty with adjacent segment stress redistribution and patients have been getting what we call adjacent segment disease and they've been having uh, re-operations to address those issues. Additionally, there's been some issues and concerns about the fusion not healing uh, and you get what we refer to as a painful pseudoarthrosis at requiring additional surgery. So um, disc replacement has come along and uh, its goal was to maintain and preserve motion uh, instead of fusing the spine as we know. And uh, now that we have of over a decade of data uh, with clinical outcomes and radiographic measures, uh, there's still a surgeon reluctance to adopt the technology. So just to kind of give us a little bit of a historical perspective on motion preserving technologies, uh, I'd like to ask Lisa to kind of fill us in a little bit. Sure. Um, we know that arthroplasty's been around for a while with the hips and the knee industry for quite some time, and they've been quite successful. Early on, there was work out of Europe. The Charité was the first real um, artificial disc that came out onto the market in the United States. They'd been using it in Europe for quite some time with a lot of success. From that point, uh, once they had achieved approval in the United States, designs uh, from other companies, multiple, multiple designs started to come out and really become the next generation for um, both cervical and lumbar disc technology. Uh, we see more of it now in the cervical spine for a number of different reasons, um, mainly uh, regulatory challenges, but the loading environment biomechanically um, is a bit uh, easier, better, safer environment. And so since then, there's been some very exciting new technologies, um, the most recent incorporating some ceramic materials as well for um, uh, optimal performance with respect to wear, for instance. As oh, an certainly, and there's a, there's a, we've seen that evolution in orthopedics in general with uh, metal on plastic bearings, metal on metal bearings, yes. and, and certainly ceramic. And I think as Lisa mentioned, as you're mentioning, Mark, uh, orthopedics has been well 
versed in replacing joints. Uh, we have all known about the total joint replacement and the knees and the hips that have worked tremendously well. Some of the most successful surgeries we do for patients with uh, improved uh, uh, outcomes and uh, quality of life have, have been with those procedures compared, they are even been compared to uh, uh, you know, heart surgery, uh, bypass surgery, as far as improving quality of life. So historically, total joint replacement has been a tremendous asset that we've had providing care for our patients. And then that evolved into, let's put this, these disc replacements in the spine. And the first place that started was in the lumbar spine. And I think part of the reasons that um, we've had apprehension and uh, you know, maybe perhaps delay in, in the cervical disc being successful and, you know, and, and using it more widely is probably has something to do with the fact that initially when spine surgeons started using disc replacement, we started using it in the lumbar spine. The indications for lumbar spine surgery are different. Sort of low back pain, which we all know does not have really good outcomes, whether you fuse or do disc replacement. So that in our mind is associated with disc replacement. Disc replacement in the neck is a completely different animal. Uh, the indications are primarily the, the big difference here. The indications of disc replacement, as, as you mentioned, in the neck is to relieve pressure from the nerves. Relieving pressure from the nerves when we do the spine surgeons is got the best outcomes, right? Right. So, and, and so I think that's one of the things that we have to get over as spine surgeons is that cervical disc is different than a lumbar disc. And that, you know, cervical disc actually now that with the recent, I just saw uh, in uh, JBJS, I saw an article uh, as a meta-analysis just August of this year, looking at over like 14 uh, uh, clinical trials that have been done, which, which shows at four and seven years and seven and 10 years, significant uh, better results as far as adjacent level disease and uh, re-operations for patients who had um, you know, uh, disc replacement versus uh, fusions in, in the neck. So I think that the data is coming out and has been out, but so part of the apprehension is that history that I just mentioned. Sure. I, Chris? I mean, I think one of the other things is ACDFs are wildly successful. So you got something that we know works really well. We got surgeons who've been doing it for a really long time, and now these younger surgeons are realizing, hey, we can do a disc replacement or a fusion. And now we're starting to see new studies that show it's probably not equal, it's probably actually better in a lot of respects. And I think that information is what needs to get out a little more widely. Yeah. So <coughs> with, with data coming out showing that patient-reported outcomes are at least equivalent, if not better, with disc replacement versus a fusion, and uh, with reports of reoperation rate being lower in the long run with disc replacement, and uh, some studies, although a lot of assumptions were made, showed that the value of disc replacement might actually be superior as well in the long run. Yes. What do you guys think is still giving these surgeons yeah. this reluctance to adopt the technology? Well, you know, uh, as we all know, uh, during training, um, we are trained by older surgeons, perhaps, who are, as surgeons, when something works really well for us, like Chris mentioned, uh, ACDFs work amazingly well. Um, the surgeons who are training the next generation of surgeons are still sticking with the ACDF. So I think there's gonna be a little bit of a delay in the trainers 
um, developing that trust with the new technology in order to train the trainees, <laughs> right? So I think that yeah. has something to do with it. Sure, I think some of the newer technology for me leaves me a little hesitant about, you know, how is it being inserted? What is its range of motion? How does it affect facet or fu um, function and kinematics? And I'm just apprehensive overall at putting something new in until I see how it's failed, which takes time. Sure. And well. even the older implants, we put them in a little, they needed to be just right to be yeah. functional and, and they're different now. Exactly. I think folks are, are they always, the surgeons like to wait until they start to look at, hey, the outcomes right now after one, two years look great, but they're waiting for not only the next generation, how are we going to make this first generation better? Companies are skeptical of that too. They want to make sure, is the first generation working and how do we design the next generation to improve upon that? But as a surgeon, it's the um, uh, wanting to know what the, those failures may be potentially, but also maybe there's something better that's going to come out after that. And again, just the perhaps lack of experience during their training mm -hmm. sure. for new technology. I think to your point, uh, so you're saying you want to see the results before you start putting in because we're, we don't want to reoperate on our patients. Right. And if the salvage operation is, is harmful to the patient, we even are more apprehensive. The good news for the cervical spine, we all have been there, when we go in and do revision surgeries for the cervical spine, uh, we, we are much more comfortable and feel much safer for the patient than the lumbar spine. So that's another advantage I think the cervical spine has in, the, in this regard. Well, and that, that's an excellent point too, like you had said that the salvage part of this, but also waiting, is it only going to last two years? Well, now we're 10 years out. Sure. So even if you're buying the patient an additional 10 years, that's a huge improvement on the quality of life. Well, that's a good point. Well, thank you guys for joining today. Um, we, all, uh, we all try to practice evidence-based medicine and we like to not jump on the latest greatest without the data, but then again, there's a fine line. When the data's there and it shows that this is something that may be beneficial to your patients, we shouldn't be so reluctant to adopt that kind of technology. So thank I you agree. again. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you.